The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? A few months ago, an intriguing article in the Washington Post shed light on the latest situation in Xinjiang, the western region of China where the Uyghur minority live. The two journalists... Ava Doe and Kate Cadell saw on their travels around the region last summer that many of the infamous re-education camps had been shut down or turned into quarantine centres. A new phase of Beijing's campaign in the region seems to have started. So what's really going on there now, and what does this mean for the lives of the Uyghur people? I'm joined by Professor James Millwood from Georgetown University, author of Eurasian Crossroads, A History of Xinjiang, to find out. So, Jim, welcome. To start with, can we do a status update? Um, what is the latest from Xinjiang? And is the reporting from the Washington Post, the fact that the camps have been closed, is that what you've been hearing too? Yeah, so we're hearing this from various sources. The Washington Post reporter, Eva Doe, was able to go around and actually look at some of these places from outside and see that they were shuttered or perhaps repurposed. And we're hearing from Uyghur exiles that some of their uh, relatives have been sent home. Maybe they're in home arrest, house arrest, something like that. So it does seem that there's been a transitioning away from what most people had focused on for the last few years, namely, you know, the camps themselves, the extra extra legal uh, detention of people in camps themselves. But a lot of these folks have been transferred to prisons, have been given prison sentences, uh, from, from what we can tell. A lot of them have been transferred into various kinds of forced labor. So the the, the crisis isn't over, and even you know the, the detention and controls on people are not over. Just staying on the camps before we talk about what the new phase looks like, it's, it's fascinating that their closure, or, or part closure at least, is fascinating because it's not something that seems to have caught on in the West where politicians are still talking about camps. I think for most people thinking about Uyghurs in Xinjiang, that's what they what comes to mind. So is their closure a sign that Beijing considers that phase of the campaign, as it were, to have been successful? Or was it actually an admission of failure that actually that's not the way you get people to change their minds, to re-educate them, as it were? I think it's probably mainly an admission that the camps are very obvious to to the West. You can see them from you know, satellites. They really drew in a lot of attention. I don't think anyone involved in this plan in, in China anticipated that they would be compared to concentration camps, although, in mm. fact, you know, they really are very, very similar. So I think what we see is a moving away from this one part of a much broader program that has attracted the most attention and trying to, you know, sort of transition away from that. You know, that said, there was always the rather bizarre concept behind all this was that people would be re-educated those aspects of their independent ethnicity or so, so-called religious extremism would be would be taken out of them by this process, and then everything would be fine. 
right? They'd be cured. They'd be, you know, the, the tumor would be cut out. The virus would be eradicated. They used those kind of languages. So in around 2019, when we began to see this transition away from the camps themselves, the PRC authorities did announce that uh, people had graduated. That was the terminology they used, of course, playing on the euphemism that these were schools. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let, let's talk about those graduates then, because you, as you mentioned, it seems like some of them are back home, but possibly under house arrest or at least being monitored. Some of them have been moved into prison properly and some of them are in forced labor camps. Is, is that right in terms of the kind of the main, what it looks like to have the attention of the state on you as a Uyghur in Xinjiang today? Yeah. So it seems to be those are the main, you know, sort of the main outcomes. Um, it's very hard to tell the numbers because uh, they've tightened up so much compared to you know, just a few years ago. And it is hard to go in there and, and, and find out. But um, certainly people are not free, right? And indeed, it may be the case that there are more people now in some kind of coercive labor or another, mm. either in Xinjiang or in other parts of China, than were involved in the camps themselves all along. Because they've also extended this so-called poverty alleviation labor transfer program to people in villages who had not necessarily been in the camps before, but the idea being that they're unemployed in villages that need to be moved into some kind of labor. And so they're being proletarianized and moved into, into factories. Jim, can you talk a little bit about the wider context of poverty alleviation that's happening in China at the moment? Because, I mean, you know, the government a few years ago set it as one of its key targets. And the outgoing Premier Li Keqiang made some waves a couple of years ago by saying that China still had a lot of people living in poverty. So, so given that this is a goal that the government wants to achieve across the country, not just for its ethnic minorities, but for the people as a whole, what does that context of poverty alleviation mean when we talk about Xinjiang and, and for example, uh, what people have called forced labor schemes? Is it just Beijing going about poverty alleviation in a typically ham-fisted way? It's useful to see this going back actually, even before Xi Jinping, going back a couple of decades uh, to programs such as the Open the, the, Open the Great Northwest uh, schemes. And actually, there's been ideas about this, you know, even going back into the early 20th, 20th century. So there's been a series of schemes to develop, some would say colonize and, and uh, exploit the resources from Xinjiang and other Western places. It is very true that the Uyghur area of southern Xinjiang, where most Uyghurs are concentrated, as well as Tibet, are among the poorest places in China as a whole in terms of per capita incomes and have been have been consistently. And you know, there's some parallels here, I think, to, for example, parts of the United States, um, which are consistently poor, where um, Native American reservations, for example, or or you know, Appalachia and places like this. China has attempted to, or has, has talked about poverty alleviation in these areas in the context of development. And the argument has been that broader development would improve the lives of, of poor non-Han peoples in this area. Unfortunately, broadly speaking, the development programs have involved infrastructure. They've involved uh, petrochemical extraction in Xinjiang. They've involved development of city areas. And mainly the benefits of these programs have gone to Han people or people in the richer north of Xinjiang or to uh, companies or state-owned enterprises that are involved in extracting resources, mining, and that kind of thing. And they've still left the rural poverty centers relatively untouched. There's a, a famous Uyghur economist named Ilham Tokhti, who used to teach 
uh, at the uh, Minzu University, the Central Nationalities University in Beijing. And he was actually asked by high Chinese officials to go out to Xinjiang and, and study this persistent problems of poverty. This was back in the you know, 2000 and early 2010s. He was arrested in 2014. Mm. And he did a you know, very systematic study. And his argument was that these places are poor in the same way that many parts of rural eastern China were poor uh, before the reforms began in the in the 1980s. And they were poor because they lacked market access. They were poor because they were still largely under a communal kind of organization, that is commune kind of organization of agriculture, uh, where a state the state controls both the price of inputs for farming and also the, the price that's paid for crops that come out of it. And so it was really a very controlled kind of system. And, and Ilham Tokti's argument was that uh, marketization, access to other kinds of economic opportunities, uh, including you know, entrepreneurship of all sorts, would be the best solution uh, for this. And indeed, as anyone who's you know, been around China in recent decades knows, actually, the Uyghurs are terribly entrepreneurial. They're famous for that, right? You know, Uyghurs in, in, in Chinese uh, in Chinese cities are famous for selling kebabs, I mean, most stereotypically, but they're also um, involved in suitcase trade with Central Asia, um, you know, money changing before the end of foreign exchange. So they were very involved in these kinds of, in these parts of the economy where they were allowed to have access to, mm. right? It's not that there's anything cultural about Uyghur culture that prevents them from being entrepreneurial, but they were structurally inhibited from getting into this. And of course, uh, discrimination and employment is a big issue that's seldom talked about. It's never talked about in Chinese materials, but it's very well known to every Uyghur. Uh, and even you know, someone like me going in there, I could actually see evidence of this in Urumqi 15, 20 years ago going around. You'd see signs and so on saying, you know, Han worker wanted, things like that. And in mm. particular, the, the big state enterprise of the, the Xinjiang Production Construction, Construction Corps the Bingtuan, uh, they're infamous for hiring only Han for many years and, and explicitly doing so. so. So the results of this are that the higher levels of economic development and even things like construction jobs and long distance trucking, things like that, have largely been closed to the Uyghur population in Xinjiang while they've been open to Han coming in. So, so over a long period of time, just kind of top-down development schemes that focus on big projects, high-level infrastructure, and that kind of thing that serve the cities of northern Xinjiang mainly, as well as job discrimination, has exacerbated the poverty of rural uh, southern Xinjiang. And no one really took Tokti's arguments about this seriously. And in fact, after the riots of 2008 in Urumqi, there was a push to move rural Uyghurs back to the south, right, using the Hukou system. And around the time of the Olympics as well, I'm sorry, 2009 with the rise in the Olympics in 2008, around uh, the, the time of the Olympics, you know, Uyghurs and Tibetans famously were being you know, moved out of cities in eastern China. So there's been a general tendency anytime there is a, a security concern or anything like this to use the Hukou system to move people back to these rural impoverished areas. And so rather than getting the market access that Tokti talked about as the best solution to developing to, to human development in the region, crackdowns have 
bottled people up more and more in these farming areas with a commune system that in many ways is similar to, to sharecropping. So now we have the use of poverty alleviation in many ways as a pretext for controlling the entire population. Um, first through camps with the idea of vocational training being necessary, and then now mass movement of people into factory labor, right? Um, without actually giving them access to entrepreneurial activities. Uh, another mm. approach to development, which is of course you know, very well known around the world um, now, and, and it's often seen as best practices, are small loans, Grameen Bank kind of loans, right? Allowing people to start small businesses, um, to farm or raise animals on their own, things like that. And as far as I know, that's never been tried in the in the region, even through you know, partner the, the the famous or the there's a another program known as the Partnership Pairing Program or the Aid Xinjiang program, which has matched up Xinjiang cities and townships and counties with cities and, and counties and provinces in eastern China. For example, Shenzhen had such an, a, re, a relationship with Kashgar. And quite a lot of money went into that as well. And the idea was that these developed areas of the East would be able to bring not just money, a, a, a small percentage of their annual income, but also expertise into parts of Xinjiang and help develop it. So, you know, on paper, it doesn't sound like a bad idea, but Shenzhen is very different from Kashgar for, for many reasons. Mm. And also the kinds of expertise and the kinds of programs that they built were again, top down. It was like, oh, let's build a factory here like we have in Shenzhen. Well, you don't have access to capital like Shenzhen did in the early years. You're, you're farther away from your markets and so on. So, so what that has turned into is really a, a chasing of cheap labor, you know, the last cheap labor in China, after all the you know, Sichuan, uh, Sichuan young women, you know, I, I know are sort of priced out and so on and so forth. The last places where the where cheap labor can be found is in is in Xinjiang. And so, in effect, what's happened with many of these more recent development programs is that they're simply bringing this low value manufacturing jobs uh, out there and then forcing people to take them. So the new sweatshops, but with... In a way, yes, exactly. But with that ethnic dimension there of, I mean, can we can you expand on what you mean by forcing people to take those jobs? Yeah, so there's uh, various sort of tiers, as far as we know, of the, of the forced labor. One seems to have been simply moving people from the camps directly into factories, where they stay in, in dormitories within factories. Sometimes the factories have been actually within the, the precincts of the camps themselves or in, in you know, industrial parks that have the camps in them. And so sometimes it's not much of a move. They're still living under controlled conditions. In fact, this is really a condition of their release is that they then work in a factory, uh, sometimes for, for no wages. It's been documented sometimes for very low wages uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, then there's labor transfers, which involve moving people further away to other parts of Xinjiang or other parts of, of China. And again, some of those facilities seem to have actually been restricting the movements of people you know, living within dorms, living within compounds. They're not free to move around. They're not free to travel back and forth. And then there's been a lot of campaigns, as I said before, to move people from villages mm -hmm. and, and enroll them in various kinds of labor schemes. Um, particularly young women, you know, the party goes in and they they set up recruitment centers and they you know are very very urging people 
very vociferously that they need to come do this, that it's good for, good for their, the party, it's good for their families, that's just what they need to do. And often people don't want to do this, but they're under a lot of pressure to do it. And in the background, there's always these anti-extremism laws uh, that say, well, if, if you disagree with the party, those camps are still there to, you know, to train the extremism mm -hmm. out of you. So one thing that people who analyze this have pointed out is that there really isn't, that no kind of state labor program can be non-coercive in a situation where you have just had one to two million people locked away against their will for two years. You know, that's still in the background. Those laws are still on the books. And so this is one of the reasons why so much of this labor is seen as, as coercive. Mm -hmm. And are they are they paid? I, in my understanding, they're paid, but very, very little. Is that right? I mean, I think it, it varies. I think um, mm -hmm. some are paid. Um, there has been some you know, direct transfer from camps, I think, where people were not paid. But it's where we have evidence. There's you know, low wages or you know, low below market wages, or some maybe paid more like you'd expect a factory worker to be paid. We don't have a lot of data on this. And Jim, just now you mentioned the Xinjiang Production and Construction Cool, which is a company that comes up again and again when you look at forced labor in the region. Just give us an overview of what this company is. Yeah, so XPCC is its abbreviated English, Xinjiang, Shengchang, uh, let's see, I get the Shengchang and the Jianzhi wrong, Xinjiang Production Construction. So it's... And so there is that word Bing Tuan in there. So when we translate it as Production Construction Corps, we're actually leaving the Bing, that is the military component, out of it. But that's quite important. And this was originally founded in right after the PRC annexed Xinjiang in, in 1949 as a way to settle leftover Guomindang troops, nationalist troops, who had been abandoned, more or less, by Chiang Kai-shek out there in Xinjiang. Uh, and at the end of the Civil War, Guomindang leadership told them to fight to the death against the communist bandits in Xinjiang. And their generals said, no, I don't think so, and escaped over the passes through India and eventually to Taiwan. But they, of course, left behind all of the poor male, mainly male soldiers, right? many of them conscripts and things like that. So there are 80,000 Guomindang troops sitting out there in this new territory. What was the PRC going to do with them? Demobilize them and move them back to eastern parts of China? They didn't No, that didn't seem like a good idea. So they drew on the old ideas from the Han Dynasty and the Tang Dynasty of Twintian, of military state farms out on the frontier, mm. uh, soldiers who farm to support themselves, but are also there to defend the borderlands you know, against um, barbarian invasions. And this is kind of the update of that. Uh, and they created these production construction corps. And they were originally uh, other ones in, uh, I believe, Qinghai and also Mongolia and so on. The Xinjiang ones were the most long-lived and have really continued. So it started out as you know, military state farms. When Han were brought from, for example, Shanghai and, and sent down youth were brought through the like, 50s and, in, and during the Cultural Revolution out to Xinjiang, they were managed through the Bingtuan, through the XPCC, mm -hmm. and resettled. And they have a series of big uh, state farms which have sort of military terminology, they call them brigades, all around the region. They tended to get the best land, they tended to get access to the best irrigation, and tended to be almost exclusively Han enclaves. The membership is almost hereditary, so that the people there, you know, their hukos would be 
related to the Bing Tuan, they would be Bing Tuan people. They have a very strong ethos of defending the frontier and opening the, the wasteland. And so their children were often there, at, there as well. Now, in subsequent decades, as I said, more Han have been brought out. There's now, I think, over 2 million members of the Bing Tuan who are part of you know, Xinjiang pop population. Many of them are older and on pensions. They get very good social benefits, so you know, free education, free health care, and pensions, and so on. So actually, this organization is extremely expensive, and it's run uh, at a loss by, by the state. It has diversified out of agricultural production. Um, it, it grows a lot of cotton. It grows many of the fruits, such as red dates and things like that. But it's diversified out of that into a bewildering variety of other things, construction materials, a lot of financial uh, companies and and it has a lot of you know, sub firms and shell companies and all of that. So it's actually quite. It's on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Mm. There hasn't been a lot of research into it, but it's um it's a huge conglomerate really now, uh, involved in all sorts of things. So it's very significant that some of the international sanctions, both Magnitsky sanctions against entities and and also of course import bans, are really scrutinizing the Bing Tuan in particular because it's got its fingers in a, a lot of different pies. And and as one of the state's helpers in this poverty alleviation scheme, is that right? Yeah, so it's involved in, in that. It also ran the labor camps in the past. So it has always run prisons and gulags and so on. And it has run some of the camps in this most recent crackdown uh, as well. Mm -hmm. So it has a carceral dimension as well as an agricultural, industrial, financial. And it's a it's a colonial organization dedicated to settling more Chinese, that is more Han Chinese in the region. Mm -hmm. And I also want to touch on what the last few years have been like given the pandemic. I mean, I think it's interesting that some of the re-education camps have turned into quarantine centers, which is a really symbolic shift because in the last few years, I think the Han majority have been subjected to the kind of state surveillance and control that a lot of Uyghurs yeah. were not strangers to. And it was a fire in Xinjiang that triggered November's protests. So what does that say about the relationship between the Han and Uyghur? Do you think there's more solidarity for what the Uyghurs are going through in the Han majority? Well, this is something I, I, I wondered about. So as you alluded to, uh, there was a uh, horrible fire in an Urumqi apartment building back, I think, uh, in, in November, November 23rd, November 24th, something like that. And several people died in that fire, a family. And this became known... And it also became known that efforts by fire by the fire department to put out this fire in the apartment were apparently inhibited by the fact that the apartment building had been locked down, maybe by vehicles that were abandoned or also barriers or other things in the way. And so it took a lot longer to put the fire out than it might have, and, and people died as a result. And this went out on Chinese social media, and uh, and people all across China heard about it, and it led to to vigils. Um, and and public grieving, and ultimately, really, to what we sometimes call the white paper movement of those of those weeks, which generally targeted the issue of, of locking down of lockdowns and the mm. you know, non-ending approach of zero COVID. But what I've always wondered, or what I what I've wondered is, um, to what extent people you know, definitely across China felt the pathos of that family burning to death in Urumqi. To what extent they were also thinking about. Uh, the broader picture in Xinjiang. And that's kind of hard to tell. I, I 
poked around just you know asking on Twitter to see, and I got various responses from, I got a lot of responses. And some of them said, people don't know. Some of them said, yeah, people sort of know. Others said, why am I asking that question? Everybody's Chinese. We don't really care about ethnic differences like that. So, you know, I mean, interesting, you know, interesting range of, of responses. So I, I think actually, you know, there isn't a very thorough knowledge across China about what's going on there. But at the same time, the solidarity was an interesting and I think important part of this recent movement that led to the end of zero COVID. Did you get a sense of what the reverse, i.e. what the Uyghur community thought about the solidarity being shown? It struck me as really incredible, actually, that in Shanghai, the protest was happening on Wulu Muqi Wu, which is a Rumqi road. And I don't know how, I guess you see, I don't know how much the ethnicity is foremost of those hand protesters' minds, but for that name to be at that kind of national awareness was an incredible moment. I, thought. I mean, I don't know if you thought the Uyghurs thought, I mean, as far as we can generalize anyway at all. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, there was, for example, playing of Uyghur music at, I think, the Shanghai demonstration and maybe some others as well. Certainly internationally, you know, Uyghurs welcomed this concern, welcomed what seemed to be, you know, solidarity with the Uyghurs while pointing out, you know, the broader issues. Uh, one of the things that was very interesting was it, in international versions of these demonstrations, you know, in American cities, in London, and so on, there was much more, and and, and on many college campuses, uh, there was much more direct reference of the the Xinjiang mm. crisis there, where people know about it, and and we're putting two and two mm. together this way, and of course, authorities on the I think the morning after the big Shanghai demonstration. They went and they took down that Ulumuchi Road sign and, and carried it off, which I thought was very, very symbolic, <laughs> trying to prevent precisely that kind of association that, that people had been had been making. Regardless of how much um, sort of, you know, Han people across China were thinking about these broader connections, were thinking about the, the bigger Xinjiang crisis, the, the parallels are, are there. And, in, and certainly in terms of the you know, surveillance regime, the idea of cracking down, of holding people against their will to eliminate some sort of problem, be it a real virus or a supposed psychological virus. Those parallels mm-hmm. are very, very, are very, very striking. And of course, you know, technologically, these same tools and the you know, surveillance system that pivots around that cell phone that everyone has to have, those are exactly the same whether we're talking about COVID lockdowns or this entire regime of control in Xinjiang. Yeah. And Jim, I want to also ask you about this what seems to be an epistemic problem of talking about Xinjiang, i.e. how do we ever know what is actually going on in there? As you say, in the last few years, it's really tightened up in terms of access. Part of that will be COVID, but also part of that will be the region become, becoming more sensitive. What are the challenges in knowing really what's going on? Because as you say, I mean, the camps started closing in 2019 and it's 2023. We're only just starting to talk about it. There seems to be a massive lag, first of all. We're relying a lot on survivor accounts, anecdotal accounts, satellite imagery, also leaked documents from the party itself and then the, that's the party's own narrative so all of it kind of strikes me as that that scenario where, where you've got three blind men in a room feeling up an elephant well yes and no i mean you've just listed actually a lot of sources of information including the leaked documents some of which are you know, voluminous mm. the you know, numbers of accounts of people who've gotten out of either the camps or gotten out of xinjiang or we have some small children who've gotten out of these boarding schools, you know, their numbers are not huge, but they're, you know, in the dozens. 
you know, not the thousands, but at least in the dozens or maybe more, right? Some, maybe into the hundreds for some kinds of things. They're all talking about the same kinds of things, right? They're all ex having similar experiences, regardless of which camps they were in or what their social class in Xinjiang has been and so on. So we can kind of take those first person accounts with a great degree of, of confidence, I think. Also, in many ways, they're backed up by the documents that we, we have coming out, right? The documents described uh, one early set that was initially uh, received by the New York Times uh, described uh, what the plan for these camps was, how they were to be built. Uh, and they were very clearly you know, describing the blueprint for, for prisons, you know, 30 foot walls and uh, surveillance towers and all yeah. of that kind of thing. Uh, and this is what journalists who have been there can see. This is what you can see from satellite photos and so on and so forth. So what you don't have is complete data, you know, every county, how many people have been put in boarding schools, how many people have been put in camps, et cetera, et cetera. But what you do have is quite complete and mutually reinforcing snapshots of different places and different times and so on that all really tell this the same kind of picture. So, you know, you don't have complete access, you know, but occasionally you do have access. And, and as we mentioned before, the Washington Post visit recently was able to tell us quite a lot from that, that, mm. that you then corroborate from other sources as well. Yeah. And finally, Jim, I mean, this is the million dollar question for people listening to this podcast, whether you're a politician or journalist or, or just a member of the public, you know, what, what can we do to help? If you were advising Western politicians, what would you say that their strategy or approach should be about when it comes to people who care about Xinjiang as a part of a wider approach to China itself? So that's of course the the you know the tricky part being conscious of the the wider issues um the fact that I'm sitting here in Washington DC so you know the issue of US Chinese relations is very important and they've of course become very very bad uh, in a relatively short time uh, in in a dangerous way right so how to approach these particular problems particular issues of 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 human rights how China is dealing with so-called minority peoples and so on. How do you do that as part of the broader issue, which of course includes not only potentially military tensions over Taiwan, but really the bigger looming issue of climate change uh, in which mm. US and China are kind of the yin and yang, right? With China being the, producing the most carbon uh, and, and US consuming the most goods uh, and consuming the most carbon on a on a per capita basis, right? No, it, it's really true. And and so there's no way we're going to be able to think about this without being aware of that. So how do you do this? I think that the kinds of sanctions that have been applied so far, and there's actually over 100 of them in various types now, just from the US alone, particularly those that target individuals, that target Xinjiang entities, have been have been thoughtful in the sense that they are targeted, right? They're not across the mm. board. You know, we, we forget that there's still massive tariffs on Chinese goods coming into the United States, which, which the Trump administration slapped on for no particular political reason and, and got nothing from, but they continue, right? And I don't think, you know, that's not necessarily a useful thing to, to do, to attack the entire Chinese economy like this. And particularly then to sort of forget about it, <laughs> which is where we currently are now, right? But the particular Xinjiang sanctions both make a point and then also do have the potential, and particularly the, the more recent uh, Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, does have the poten potential of indirectly mobilizing corporations 
to help make this point, right? By incentivizing them to stay away from Xinjiang, uh, lest their goods not be importable to the United mm. States. And the EU is also thinking of and um, talking about a similar kind of um, bill. I mean, you know, of course, there, every, every country or, or most countries do have laws already about importing goods made with forced labor. Uh, but this would be sort of an updated one. And I think those kinds of things do over time have the potential of making this not a viable strategy to continue in, in Xinjiang. But, but it's difficult, right? It's not the sort of thing where you push a button and there's an immediate reaction. And it involves, I think, as much the importance of messaging is equal to that of actual economic pain, whatever that might be mm -hmm. that could be exerted. Because we know already that the, the, the CCP is willing to throw billions and billions and billions at Xinjiang. Building up this camp system was hugely expensive. And now, as we see, they've shuttered them a few years later right? These brand new facilities. So they're willing to throw whatever it takes economically at Xinjiang to maintain uh, control there. But we can at least make it less attractive for corporations to be involved. Can I push you on that a bit, Jim, which is that there's this age old debate about sanctions, economic sanctions, and whether or not they, when applied on authoritarian regimes, actually hurt the regime or the people, the ordinary people who are a part of that economy. In this scenario, you, you know, I hear totally what you're saying about how the Xinjiang economic structure is set up so that those are the top benefits disproportionately. But sanctions like that, you know, if, if we're saying we're moving away from Xinjiang cotton, we're moving away from Xinjiang solar panels, does that not have a negative impact on the livelihoods of Uyghur people in the region as well. Not to say that that's a reason not to do it before any listeners get get concerned, but 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 it's a it's a, it's a consideration. It's uh, right. You know, if we take the example of U.S. sanctions on Iran, right, over a long period of time, you know, I think that's definitely you know, it's a very serious issue. It has, it's been affecting the overall economy in ways that hurt the wrong people and hasn't really seemed to mm. have had much effect on on changing regime behavior, right? I, I think in the case of Xinjiang, I've been, I've been thinking about this and aware of this. It's hard to know, but I don't think there's been the kind of impact on the you know, Xinjiang economy overall due to sanctions that we can see that it's affecting everyone as opposed to particular groups. The COVID issue and the lockdowns themselves have been much more serious, have had a much more serious impact on the economy all over China and particularly in Xinjiang where they've been very severe. So in a sense, that's masking this right now and it's, it's, it's hard to know. But the singling out the solar industry, singling out cotton, these are you know, very important parts of the Xinjiang economy. I think that they're broadly, the effects of these are going to be, the, the messaging from this is, is particularly important. I don't think it's going to impoverish people in Xinjiang any more than they already are impoverished if we make it more difficult for them to be moved into you know, forced labor situations. And this is the thing. And it, it could be easily said, oh, well, why am I opposed to, or why is the West opposed to giving you know, poor Uyghur people jobs, right? And this is why I explained at some length before the broader discussion about development in the region. Uh, proletarianizing the urban, the rural population is not really the way to develop the, the region. It's not really the way to address poverty there uh, in the long term. It's mm -hmm. simply moving them in to be low, you know, low paid factory workers. And there's other options that could be better for them. So at least at present, I am not worried about 
the types of sanctions that are there having too many collateral effects on the wrong on the wrong people. You think that for the main part, it will hurt people who control the capital in these areas, such as the construction and production core that we've talked about. I think so. It's, it seems to they, I mean they are quite they are quite targeted. The, the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act is the broadest of them, and this in fact has been the one that you know, companies such as Nike and Apple have actually lobbied against. Um, and they are potentially the most serious because it's, it, it could make it difficult to import things from China generally if you don't know, you know where's that cotton and that T-shirt come from, even if it's made in you know, Shenzhen. You know, it could have those effects depending on how rigorously it's enforced. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it's definitely one to keep an eye on because I don't think anyone would want a situation where the Xinjiang economy is changed so that it relies more on hand tourism or, or state handouts or whatever it is. Um, and, and Jim, one other thing is, as you say, you know, the messaging is important. I want to talk about the momentum for more symbolic moves uh, such as declaring genocide or boycotting China in various international contexts like the Winter Olympics uh, or in the UK when the Queen passed away, there was this fury over whether or not the Chinese should be invited to the state funeral. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that kind of range of symbolic moves. And maybe you don't think they're all in the same category, really. But do they matter? Does the CCP care? Mm -hmm. I think the CCP definitely cares. We can tell from how vociferously they react, and often you know, with, with bitter sarcasm and truculence and so on. But they're paying attention to these kinds of, of things, these kind of statements. On, on the question of you know, is it a genocide or not, I mean, that's been taken up by various non-governmental organizations. The, the Uyghur Tribunal, uh, based in Britain, reached a finding that it was based on one of the UN criteria. I think that depends on on the particular jurists who are looking at it. In a way, I've always thought, although I think you know it is important. I think the discussion is very important because it has brought so much attention to the issue. Even you know, not quite a genocide is hardly a vote of confidence for the CCP, right? Right. But, but in a way, it's a sort of distraction because no one is really, no one who is seriously looking at this issue is uh, denying what's going on. What happens with this discussion over the word genocide is, is what's going on, does that fit our gut level notion of genocide or does it fit uh, some definition of genocide? Is it the kind of thing that could be taken up in any sort of international legal forum. And as we've seen in the UN, it, you know, it'd be impossible to do that for political reasons within the UN and so on. So, but the discussion about it is very useful. And I think the uh, same thing for the Beijing Olympics. Some were disappointed that there wasn't a maybe a, a broader kind of boycott, for example, if athletes stayed away. Uh, and there's always these arguments that oh, the athletes have worked so hard, why should they have to, you know, no. And I think that that's serious. So, you know, some political leaders did stay away. But others were disappointed that that wasn't you know, enough. But we spent months talking about it before that happened, mm. which I think is actually more valuable than what actually happened during the Winter Olympics themselves, is that this was you know, in the news. And again, even in some ways, too, it, it filtered through into China through the bubble because some of the state denunciations of foreign considerations, you know, foreign deliberations over to boycott or not, people in China hear those. It's like, oh. Why are foreigners considering you know, boycotting the Olympics? Or you know, what's going on in Xinjiang, right? So some of this kind of comes yeah. up backwards like that. So to be talking about it and airing it, I think, is the most important thing. I mean, that that's really interesting perspective on it, that the furore itself is 
in itself an end. And finally, Jim, you know, do you think there are things that doesn't work? Well, what do you think doesn't work that politicians should be refraining from? Well, they should be refraining from doing what Donald Trump did in 2019 when he met Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the, of the G20 in Osaka and said that the camps were exactly the right thing to do. And we have this from his national security. <laughs> yeah, according to John according Bolton. To John Bolton. Yeah. So they should be refraining from that. But I also think more seriously, they should be refraining from broad brush denunciations of, of, of China generally, broad China bashing, and the kind of polarization of you know, West versus China, talk, you know, always calling it communist China in Cold War type terms. And particularly in, in the United States now, we're seeing this from left and right. It's one of the few things that Democrats and Republicans seem to agree on. But it's not it's not thoughtful, right? So so your reaction to atrocities in Xinjiang shouldn't be to ban Chinese students, right? Shouldn't be to close consulates in the centers of US and you know in Texas and that resulted in the closing of a con of a consulate in Chengdu, right? So now people are thousands of miles away from a consulate in both countries. You know, those kinds of things broadly which were which were encompassed broadly under decoupling, as the Trump administration administration used to call it, are not useful. Or the China initiative, right? And obviously, which was mm. you know, the FBI was investigating people for supposed espionage within academe. Now, obviously, there's other things behind that. There's a Taiwan issue. There's other concerns. But, you know, underlining a lot of that, I think, has been the turn of popular opinion against China over the last several years, which I really think begins or is certainly gets a big boost from revelations about what was happening uh, in Xinjiang, before Hong Kong, before the pandemic, before China supported uh, Russia in, or formally supported Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It was the Xinjiang atrocities there. So this is the difficult balancing act, right? How mm. if you have a situation which many reasonable people are calling a genocide going on, how do you sit down with the leader who is responsible for that genocide and talk about climate change or trade or something like this? You know, But I think you do. You have to do it. You have to compartmentalize, you know, make clear what your values are uh, and concerns are, while at the same time getting on with things that you have to get on with. Well, that's very difficult. I mean, <laughs> it's very, very difficult. I mean, but there's a starting point. Thank you so much, Jim Millwood. Thank you, Cindy. It's been wonderful being on Chinese Whispers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of Perspectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.